You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. Boy, do I have a great show for you this week. This one is going to challenge a lot of preconceived notions, and I'm also imagining it's going to cause a lot of mixed emotions, and that's okay. We're here to have challenging conversations about what can be a pretty challenging time of life. And this week's show is all about weight. And I'll preface this by saying that we are going into the third year of this show, and this is only the second episode I've done that speaks directly about weight gain in menopause, which, when you look at the menopause universe out there, might seem shocking, because in some spaces, that is all they talk about. But not here. And there are myriad reasons for that. At this point in our lives, many, if not outright most of us, and I'm in that camp, have spent the greater part of our precious years on this planet obsessing about our bodies, and that makes me sad. My dad is 84 and still hating on his body, and it kills me. And as anyone who listens to this show knows, I have spent too many years writing for health and fitness magazines, perpetuating this weight obsession, And I would like to spend the rest of my years laundering my karma and not being part of the mainstream diet culture. That said, I do understand that this is a topic of interest to many. I do understand that it can genuinely intersect with health concerns. And I also fully respect that as active menopausal women, it can be a giant drag to have lived a life in one body shape and size and just have it change out of the blue, upending your identity, making you less comfortable in your skin, and maybe making you buy all new clothes. I get that too, which is why we're here talking about it today. And if this is a topic that interests you, I do highly recommend that you go back and listen to episode 44, Weighty Matters with Diana Reed, who is a master's of public health and a registered dietitian. Um, If you haven't already checked that episode out, she did an excellent job explaining weight in menopause and how your body is really trying to protect you. So this week, we get even more granular on the topic with one of the leading doctors in this field, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford. Dr. Stanford is an obesity medicine physician scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. When I saw Dr. Stanford speak at this year's North American Menopause Society's annual meeting, I knew I had to try to have her on the show. And considering that she also just did 60 Minutes, as well as some other super high-profile television and media, I am honored that she agreed. When Dr. Stanford took the stage, she eloquently addressed something that I had seen time and time and time and time again, and something that maybe many of you have too, that there are people who, quote unquote, do everything right and they still gain weight. And there are people who lose and gain and lose and gain their entire lives. 
everyone assumes they're eating too much or too much junk food or moving too little or lack willpower, you know the drill. But if you are one of those people or you know one of those people, you know that that is just not true. It is not as simple as calories in, calories out, exercise, and willpower. Dr. Stanford breaks that all down better than anyone I have heard in my 30 years covering this topic. She explains that energy storage, weight management, starts in the brain, and that there are dozens of factors that impact that. That is why some people seemingly never gain weight no matter what they eat. They don't have some magical metabolism as we've all been sold on. Their central nervous system is driving them to burn it rather than store it. It helps explain why some people struggle their whole lives. It helps explain why menopause can be a time of body composition changes. And that's not to say that what you eat or how you exercise doesn't matter. Of course it does. And they are part of the picture. Limiting unprocessed foods, exercising, especially resistance training, all of that matters. But it's not the whole picture. And how big of a role all that ultimately plays in weight is different for everybody. We also dive into what it means to have a healthy BMI and or weight and the problems with using both of those to define health, which is not firmly pinned to any particular size, as you'll hear her explain very clearly. I'm teeing all this up because this is a hard topic and I'm always as sensitive as I can be wading into what I know are emotionally loaded waters. So I am grateful for scientists like Dr. Stanford who are making it their mission to help people understand what's happening in their bodies and to be their healthiest, happiest selves. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right, before we get to it, the Feisty Menopause Performance Retreat is coming up fast. It's going to be held in Lake Nona, Florida this February on the weekend of the 24th through the 26th. It's going to be super fun and super educational. The theme of this retreat is healthy movement. So everything is focused on musculoskeletal health. And we have um, sessions on lifting heavy, anti-inflammatory diets, movement analysis, and much, much more. This is the first time we're doing anything like this, so space is limited. Check it out at feistymenopause.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make that super easy. I invite you to follow us at Feisty Menopause at Instagram and Facebook. You can also join that private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group that is closing in on 20,000 women in there helping each other out. Please sign up for my weekly blog where I share the latest research and what it means for you. You can sign up for that at feistymenopause.com. And thanks as always for all the ratings and the reviews that are still coming in. It means a lot to me and it's helping the show going into its third year continue to grow. And I super appreciate you guys. All right, quickly, I'd like to thank Prevenex for their continued support in 2023. They make hands down the best supplements, especially the Joint Health Plus supplement that has helped me launch into training for this half Ironman that I'm going into this year, pain-free. So thanks, Prevenex. All right, enough of me. Let's have a quick word about some of our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. 
They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice-cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. All right. Well, Dr. Stanford, I am so excited to have you here. I, your NAMS session at the annual meeting, just like it was the highlight of that whole week for me. So this is a real treat. Oh, this is a treat to be here with you. So thanks for having me. So as I mentioned sort of my, in my email to you when I, when I asked you to be on the show, like this is, these are really sensitive waters for me um, and my audience. And I'm sure you hear this all the time, but you know, it's a largely active and or athletic audience. Many of us have a history of eating disorders or disordered eating, you know, and as such, I really don't focus on weight or dieting on this show. I, I talk a lot about all kinds of stuff, pelvic floor, being strong, you name it. But that said, weight is really yeah. the number one issue I hear, which doesn't surprise you, I'm sure. So I would like to give them some science-based answers on what's happening. So I thought we'd start, before we even hit menopause, like the basics, like what drives energy storage and weight and fat gain. You know, you talked a lot about the central nervous system, which I loved, and it wasn't just this calories in, calories out that we've heard since the beginning of time. Yeah. So first of all, yeah, this a lot. So let me let me let me start. Yeah, sorry. I'm coming at you a lot. <laughs> let me start at the beginning. So I think a lot of people, you know, are unaware because of what you just said. The last thing you just said was that it's such a focus on, you know, how many calories am I eating? How much am I burning? All of these things that we've we've heard and 
and thought so long, which are, are so, so, so wrong um, that, you know, it's all about like me calorie counting and hyper focusing and measuring things on a scale and doing all these things that really stress people out. I mean, like, I mean, it stresses me out just saying it. So imagine if you're doing it, you know, how stressful it is, but that's all we ever learn. And let's look at where, where this comes from. The fact that we learn nothing in medical schools, residencies, fellowships at all about weight, weight regulation as, and that's as physicians. So if we don't learn it, who else is going to learn it? Um, and that's problematic. And it's only this year, 2022, or I know we're at the end of it, that the American Association of Medical Colleges is even giving any core competency surrounding education for the disease of obesity, which means that no one knows anything, right? Um, and part of why I came to do a three-year fellowship in obesity medicine here at Harvard was because I knew that obesity was an issue. I could see people struggling with weight for a variety of reasons, but I felt like I didn't know anything. And so how am I going to help people if I know nothing? Otherwise, it's just like the blind leading the blind, literally. Like, I, I mean, you can't, you can't teach what you don't know. And so that was part of why I've kind of endeavored, not kind of, let's just say, that's why I endeavored down this pathway, particularly as a Black woman coming from the group known to have like the highest um, issues with regards to overweight and obesity, like, what is it? Like, as I was seeing billionaires with, with this disease. And so it wasn't, obviously, if you have that degree of money on hand or access to that, it's obviously not just a socioeconomic issue, that, that it was much more vast coming from a public health background. And so I finished my MPH about 25 years ago. All we talked about was like, okay, looking at nutrition labeling and all of these types of things, which which are nice to do and they make you maybe feel like you're doing something, but something deeper was going on. So I really wanted to figure out that what that was. And that brought me into like learning the science of obesity. And so for those of you who are listening and I'm, I'm using the word obesity, which kind of can evoke some strong thoughts and emotions. And let's talk about how we're going to navigate this, you guys. So when we look at obesity, it's a clinical disease entity, which I'll talk about in a second. Not everyone has obesity and obesity by itself is not just one's weight status. We'll get into that a bit. When we hear the word obese, which is a label, a stigmatizing label, I don't want to use that. I'm not going to use that other than to just tell you I'm not going to use that label. Obesity is a disease and a clinical entity. And we want to talk about people with this disease, but people that are also predisposed to having this disease. And so we'll explain what that is. So it's important to note that obesity or weight dysregulation actually starts in the brain. Everyone thinks this is a willpower issue. You talked about your, um, the people listening are very active and it's all about like them doing and doing and doing, you know, I'm active. I, I eat well, I buy the right things from the grocery store. I grow things in my garden, all these things. And those are great. And I'm not discrediting those things, but when we start looking at weight and weight regulation, it's not just about those things. It literally is how your brain is signaling to tell your body how much to eat and how much to store. And while I know we're talking about menopause, I have to bring up my husband because he is the epitome of understanding how one's body can regulate one direction. He's a very lean individual, six feet tall, 160 pounds, can eat what he wants to eat and does not store anything ever. And I have 30 years of data to go for <laughs> to talk about. 29, if you want to be exact. But the whole point is a lot of years. So he's one of these people that can order apple pie at 11 o'clock at night, which he does once or twice a week. 
and you never see it because his body is so lean and so long. And so the presumption is that he must eat only Brussels sprouts, kale, tomatoes, onions, peppers, all the things of which he likes none of, well, actually a few of those things, and that he must just exercise all the time. He does exercise, he does eat well when eating my, the food that I prepare, but if given the choice, would he rather have pizza, burger, fries, and apple pie? Absolutely. <laughs> um, um, compared to a nice um, spaghetti squash and mashed cauliflower. Like if we're going to pick which he's going to choose, it's, it's going to be a no brainer. When you look at him, the assumptions that we have is, oh, he's very active and look how lean he is. He's in his 40s. And so he must be, you know, doing all of these things. And let's contrast that to someone else who has very severe obesity, meaning characterized by a lot of excess adipose. Adipose is fat. And you look at them and you make the assumption, oh, you know what? They probably don't exercise. You know what? I wonder what they ate for dinner last night. What did they just eat five minutes ago? All of these assumptions about what they are or are not doing because of our biases towards individuals, because we don't understand that my husband's brain upregulates the like kind of beneficial pathway of the brain. So there's two pathways that regulate weight. One pathway is the POMC or the pro-opium melanocortin pathway. That pathway tells us to eat less and store less. You didn't decide that you were gonna have great regulation of that pathway. My husband obviously was born with that and that's a great thing to have, great for him. But for everyone else, <laughs> they often will go down an alternate pathway. Um, and this is called the AGRP pathway, the Goody-related peptide pathway, which tells you to eat more and store more. It's not that you did it to yourself. You didn't like cause yourself to do that. Your brain is just like, hey, well, it's driving that, not just the behavior, it's driving the storage because you don't decide what you're going to store. You know, you're like, well, gosh, how come I worked out for four hours today, which is a lot, and this person works out four times a year, like, <laughs> why is there such differences in our bodies? And it shows you the heterogeneity or the differences between who we are. And when we look at issues like persons have a history of eating disorders or disordered eating and things of that sort. Unfortunately, and I've published studies on this that show that many of these individuals often end up with weight struggles long-term. And so why is that? Because if you look at, let's look at anorexia nervosa, for example, anorexia nervosa is um, obviously significant restriction, whether it be with caloric restriction, you know, excessive exercise, nutrient deficiencies, these are things that happen. But if you look at the core of anorexia nervosa, it's about control. I have, whomever the person is, control of what goes in my body. This control I also have in other parts of my life. So you'll find a lot of people that have a history of anorexia nervosa are type A personalities. These are the people that got straight A's. These were the people at the top of the class. These are the people that got the awards for being at the top of their class or whatever it might be because they are good at finishing certain tasks. The task now at hand was like, I'm going to regulate my body to do X, Y, and Z. Now, the brain is not very happy about that when you do that. Now, short term, you're like, okay, I restrict it. I'm very, very small. I have control. But the brain is smart, not just smart in terms of how we think, but smart in terms of what it wants to do to change that narrative. So what ends up happening for many of those patients that may have struggled with anorexia nervosa is that as they get older, they start noticing, wait a minute, I don't have control. 
I actually don't have control, but then wait a minute, but I had control. I thought I had control back here, maybe when I was an adolescent or a young adult. And as I get older, something's happening. And that's because the brain, particularly the hypothalamus parts of the brain knows that, hey, Jane Doe over here, she had this issue where she was controlling things. We're gonna make sure that doesn't happen again. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna store way more because we don't want to go down that pathway again. And so if we store way more, which she's not telling me to do, talking about Jane, then we don't have to run into that issue again. And it's not that that person is doing anything wrong. It's just the brain has found a way to course correct, to store more adipose so that the person doesn't get into an area of deficit in the future. So that's a really interesting thought process that people are unaware of that when we have these histories that the brain is trying to figure out how to prevent any deleterious effects and what it tends to do is overcorrect and it keeps you in this much higher zone even if it's not a zone of having like let's say severe obesity or something we start noticing these issues is that where yo-yo dieting can come in where people like yeah lose and then often gain more because yeah, so we call like... that weight cycling that's the fancy word for it yes yeah, so <laughs> yeah so or fancy words so yes you're right so like um, and we're, you know, let's look at the beginning of the year, January 1st, like every, the number one thing that people do, and this is since I've been living and I'm in my 40s, um, is that people do what? They say, hey, I'm going to lose weight this year. And so for many people, they choose something that's not sustainable regarding diet or physical activity or whatever it might be. And so they may lose weight acutely. And this is, you know, my I have patients that come in, oh, Dr. Stanford, I know how to lose weight. And I'm like, well, tell me a little more about that. They're like, oh, because I, I lost 50 pounds here and I lost 60 pounds here. But when they lose 50, they gain 60, right? So there was a net gain of 10 or they lose 80 and then they gain 100. And that's called metabolic adaptation. So we saw this on shows like The Biggest Loser, which actually promoted a lot of this diet culture and like, oh, if you just work hard at it, you can do this. So what we saw on the show, and actually the NIH investigator, Kevin Hall, studied this group really quite well. I would say some of the best studies we've seen on this topic of metabolic adaptation anywhere in the world. We looked at these contestants that would be brought into a, a camp where they were you know, really working out somewhere between eight to 10 hours a day um, and have severe caloric restriction in the context of this. For most people in a setting like that, acutely they will lose pretty dramatic amounts of weight. There are a few rare genetic obesities that even with those types of activity and restriction, you won't see any weight shifts, but that's those are kind of what we call rare forms of disease. So let's look at most people. So on, on the show, right? If you, for any of you guys that remember the show, these people were brought in season after season and you would see them lose these amazing amounts of weight. Amazing, I'm you know, putting in quotes because you're like, oh my God, look at this. They lost 250 pounds and, and then they were rewarded with this, right? Like, oh, we'll give you, I don't know, I can't remember the prize amount, 500K, I don't know, something like that. Two, between 250 and $500,000 because you showed that you could do it. The problem is their brain is smart. And 96% of them regained all of their weight. So then people, the consumption that is made at this point is that, 
because they weren't doing anything afterwards. But I'm going to refute that because if you look at the individuals post the show, they may not have been working out for eight to nine hours, but many of them were still working out in excess of two to three hours a day, which for me, that would be a lot of time to dedicate to that. I would have to like change my job. <laughs> um, I do work out every day, but I do not have two to three hours. Sometimes I'm like, wait, where can I get in this 30 minutes here? Which is exactly what happened today when I did my Peloton 30 minute boot camp. Um, but, <laughs> cause I was like, I gotta get to do grand rounds. Um, but the whole point is, is that that's a lot of time. Two to three hours is still quite a bit. It's not eight to nine, but two to three hours is quite a bit. A lot of these people were still trying to restrict, but what happens is, like I told you, the brain is really, 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 really great at what it does. So what happens is, on average, if you're looking at these these contestants in the show, their baseline metabolic rate, like what their body would burn at baseline for these people with a lot of ex excess, was about 2,000 calories a day. With restriction and with these things, their resting metabolic rate dropped to an average of somewhere between seven to 800 calories. Oh, my God. Okay. What happens when your metabolic rate to the dots that low? That means you now have to restrict even further, right? To not gain. Now, I have not really gotten a chance to eat very much today, which is not a good for you guys listening. But let's just say I was able to eat a normal amount today. I can guarantee you that I will be eating more than 700 calories today or 800. Let's use it, whichever number you want to use. Most people will eat more than 800 calories a day. How long can you keep a restriction of 500 calories or below? I would say probably not very long, right? So what ends up happening is they're trying to restrict, they're trying to restrict, but the body's resting metabolic rate. And so what ends up happening is that if you just go a little bit above that, the body is shifting itself back up and back up and back up. And then you have these different hormones in the body, like ghrelin, which are telling you, driving you to eat more. Um, you have leptin going on, you have GLP-1, you have all these hormones that are going in that are pulling you sometimes behavior wise, but also pouring like I need to store more because something's not going something's not right in this milieu of who you are in this context of severe restriction and significant activity. There's a lot going on in the body. And so it's not that this person's fault. It's not a willpower issue. It's an issue of like how their body is now having to adjust to this really something that was just not normal for any human body let alone someone that struggled with very, very severe obesity. So that's the complexity of the disease. And once we recognize the complexity of weight regulation, we begin to recognize that this isn't just someone's fault. And even as we gain weight over different times that we can get into looking at like what happens as we like kind of embark upon menopause and how that's the weight next shift, question. Yeah. Right. Oh, see, look. Well, yeah, because I mean, so many women like in the audience will have will will be kind of the same and it is i love when people are like well you just slow down when you hit this time i'm like these women have training logs for 30 years they know what they're doing no and actually some of them intensify actually i find that particularly as we're going into the menopause period let me tell you what's going on in the lives of women i don't have to tell you guys but let's talk about it so maybe you've already had your children they're now like you know adult children so maybe you have a bit more time in your hands you're not running around after some little kids getting them to soccer games or ballet classes or whatever and so now you're able to focus on yourself so you're focusing on yourself you have the resources to to buy the food that you'd like to buy you have the access to the trainers and the gyms and all of these things and let me tell you why the number one reason that the person that comes in to see me is a peri or postmenopausal woman. 
because they're doing all, they're checking all the boxes, right? I exercise well, I eat well, I look happy, I've been looking at, I look at the macro and micronutrients of my food. I, I do all this stuff, but what is going on? Why am I gaining weight? This isn't making any sense. I'm doing the stuff. I'm doing the right stuff. Where am I, what, why is this going on? And so it's all hormonal. And so what happens is as we make that transition into menopause, which is the, the major transition that happens as we, as we, we can't, we can't stop it. I guess if you're not human, it won't happen. But if you are human, and I hope you are humans that are listening to me and human women, <laughs> you will go through a period where estradiol, which is estrogen begins to drop. Right. And it's not that you can't stop it. You can't be like, Oop, I want to pause that. Nope. I mean, I guess you can do hormonal replacement therapy, which is another thing, but, but it's going to go down. As it goes down, you go from having this gynoid, so gynoid sounds like gynecology, gynoid means female-like, distribution of weight, which is more in the hip, buttock, and thigh region, thick thighs save lives, that's where that term comes from, to having an android. An android, we think of a phone, right? Like, it is a phone, but it also means male-like. So if you have an android, you have a male-like phone, maybe you want to switch to Apple, but that's another story for another day. But um, <laughs> android means male-like, which means central weight distribution. So the weight migrates. And even if you're lean, you're saying, wait, wait a minute, where's this pouch? What is that pouch? I mean, I had kids way back over here. Where's this pouch coming from? It's hormonal in nature. So this is why you see a lot of men that, you know, you look from the, the from the back and they look very lean and then they turn around and you're like, oh my gosh, they carry a lot of central adiposity, that weight in the midsection. And so our bodies as women start to migrate into that milieu. And so you're like, but, but I don't understand, but let me do this. Let me do more, right? Let's, let me exercise more. Let me do this. But why is that still there? I'm doing all the stuff. I'm doing the core training. I'm doing high intensity interval training. I'm doing all the stuff. And it's that hormonal shift. And so don't blame it on yourself. Blame it on the fact that you're a woman that happens to be human. I don't know what happens in other species, but outside of humans. But in humans, this is what happens. And it's standard and it's normal and it's not your fault. And you're also losing some muscle, right? I mean, that, you know, estrogen is anabolic. So there's that problem. Absolutely. Well, lean yeah. muscle. I mean, lean muscle begins to take the biggest dive at 60 is when we start to see that really major drop, which is why when we're looking at even weight regulation and therapies we use, one of the major struggles that all of us have is that whether we're using lifestyle or medications or surgical interventions, when you lose weight, you don't preferentially lose fat. You lose both fat and you're losing lean muscle. And I can't say, ooh, okay, I just want to target just the fat portion. <laughs> you know, when you lose, you're losing everything. You can't, you're not saying to your body, hey, we just want to go to that stomach region and get that fat there. It's gonna, you're gonna lose lean muscle. What does that mean? You know, when we talk about older adults having issues with getting up out of a chair and ambulating. That lean muscle helps us move about and navigate space, um, which is why when we're looking at fitness versus just weight, we have to look at these in conjunction with each other. I'd rather you carry significant degree of excess weight if you have good lean muscle recruitment and are able to navigate space and time without needing assisted devices like maybe a cane or a wheelchair or things of that sort. So these are extremely important. Yeah, we 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 lift a lot in our group. We oh, I very like much, that. I like we're very that. much into strength training. Um, yeah, I can tell by looking. She's she's like, let's uh, let's let's do a lovely body pump, Les Mills workout. I I I do that any day. Yeah, yeah. So 
So let's, so this is a, this is kind of a loaded question that I'd really like to unpack. And I think this is a good, when does that fat gain become problematic for an otherwise fit and healthy individual? And I'll tell you way back in the nineties, I sat in a session with Dr. Stephen Blair. I'm not sure if you know who he I is. I know Steve very well. Yeah, he's at University of South Carolina. He's yeah. so great. I interviewed him literally just last year. He's still at it. Yeah, um, yeah. But he's like, I am a fat, bald, short marathon runner and like, you know, I will always be, but I'm healthy. And he said, like, that's what he said every time I'd see him. He's like, and I'm still a short football marathon runner. Yeah. But, you know, there's so many people, you know, Myrna Valerio comes to mind. There's, there's all these wonderful athletes who are in larger bodies. And they're just like, I'm not going to battle my body anymore. I just, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be athletic. I'm going to be active. And so, you know, we hear all this about BMI, we hear all this yeah. stuff, we hear your waist circumference, like, it, it, what metrics really matter? And like, is it just a matter of monitoring metabolic health to decide if they have a problematic um, disease? You know, that's a really, I love this question. This is one of my favorite questions. I don't feel like it's loaded. I think it's a really great question. Because, well, let's, let's take let's take the audience through the origins of BMI, um, which I think is extremely mm. important because it, it helps us to understand why BMI, particularly as a solo metric, is problematic. So BMI is um, derived from a Belgium statistician who in the 1800s, his name is Adolphe Coutelet, decided to determine what was normal for Belgium soldiers um, in the 1800s. Like what was the normal weight to be, fight in the Belgium army? Um, last time I checked, um, Celine, myself, and you, I don't know if we're males in the 1800s fighting in the army. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. None of that. Like, no, not right? Belgian. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was where kind of this, the, the statistician came up with what's considered normal for, for white men in the, in the army at that time. Now, of course, because we have such wonderful humans, and this is, I'm being very facetious when I say that, um, people take things like this, of this decision of what's normal and, and, and use it for deleterious purposes. And Sir Francis Galton um, decided to come up with the idea of eugenics, which is the, the desire to reproduce people of a certain size, race, ethnic, race, racial ethnic background, immigrant status, socioeconomic status, and this became the basis for Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany, based upon some of these metrics that Adolf Kutlet came up with. All right. So you guys know what happened with Nazi Germany. That wasn't kind of like one of the shining moments in human history. And so then let's fast forward. So that was the 1800s. We're fasting forward to now to the 1930s, 1930s, 1940s, where the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company decided to come up with what's ideal with regards to body weight based upon their actuarial data. So now we're looking at metrics to determine, okay, what's your risk of dying based upon size and then them deciding which premium they're gonna you know, charge you based upon your size. This became the basis for what we look at in terms of BMI today. Now notice we had a statistician back in the 1800s. We have the life insurance companies. Last time I checked, neither of those were either medicine or science, but yet people that's what... were smoking so much too in the 50s. So <laughs> what we do know that BMI is, is that it tells you height and weight. It doesn't tell us health. And so getting back to my former mentor, Steve Blair, um, when I was at the University of South Carolina in residency and doing a lot of work in lifestyle, particularly looking at physicians and medical students and residents and fellows, was looking at this metric that we often don't look at, which is fitness. And so you can have fitness and carry excess weight 
And actually, if we look at studies that look at this quote unquote, I don't like to use these words, but fat, but fit phenotype, you would rather be someone that carries excess weight and be fit than someone that's lean and not fit. Okay, so these are really important, which is why with every patient that I see, whether they have overweight or obesity, I don't give them a target number. Selena. I never give them a target number, which drives some of them crazy because there are a lot of type A personalities, right? They're like, hey, what's the number? What, what should I be? And I'm like, I don't know. Let's see what your body, but, but, but what's the number? Isn't there sure to be a number? And I'm like, well, no, let's look at the whole you. And that gets back to what you asked about the metabolic health. So there was a recent article, let's say within the last two months, Selena, that I, I can't remember which, which person interviewed me. And the way that the, the title of this article, I think will speak to what I feel. It says that the way they think they titled it, I'm an obesity expert and I'm comfortable with my patient weighing 300 pounds. So let's talk about the context of this article. I mean, that that was exactly how I said it, but that that's a good summary. So I had a patient. Um, this is actually one of my what the patient that I consider to be like my dream patient. When I first moved to Boston, uh, this is a gentleman um, that was a train conductor on the commuter rail, which is the equivalent of like the Long Island Railroad for those people that know New York City. And so I lived outside of the city at that point for the first year and I would take this train in every morning at 7.13 into Boston. And every single morning I saw this gentleman that had carried a lot of degree of excess weight. He would like walk up and down the aisles. He was sweating profusely, he climbed this, he'd do that. He'd take the tickets. He was doing all this stuff. But every single day, I was just one of these thousands of people like smushed against the, you know, the train like moving around into downtown Boston. But I was like, as an obesity medicine fellow at the time, I was like, gosh, I'd love to see this guy because I can see that he's doing all the stuff, you know, but his body just carries a lot of weight. So fast forward, I don't know the number of years, but let's say three, four years, and I walk in my office and who is sitting there but this guy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, literally, I get so excited. I'm like, oh, you're the train conductor. I like walk <laughs> in and I'm so excited. And I'm like, oh, and I see you and you're moving and doing all this stuff. And he's looking at me like, who, like, I mean, I guess this is overwhelming, right? Like, like I'm, cause, <laughs> I mean, I knew exactly who he was. Like, I've, I've watched this guy years. Like, I watched this guy, but I never, like, I thought it'd be presumptive of me to hand him my car. Hey, I'm an obesity medicine physician. You're going to see me. That's, that's a bit much, right? That kind of deviate from everything I said. So anyway, I didn't. And so, but I'm seeing him. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Anyway, so. When I walked in, I noticed that there was a woman that was an older woman. So this gentleman was like in his mid to late 40s. But there's a woman that was there. And I, you know, old enough to that could have been his mom. I not that I didn't see her, but I was so excited to see him that I acknowledge I saw this person, but I was really focused on him. And then I pulled my my focus back and recognized that she's there and this woman's crying. And I do, she does identify herself as his mother. And she says to me the following, Dr. Stanford, you are the first doctor that I've ever taken him to in my life that believed, well, first of all, I was excited to see him and believed that he wasn't just someone that was inactive, eating all day, and she's crying for the first 10 minutes of our, the visit because I was so excited. Like, I was like, oh gosh, this is great. Like, this is amazing. The day he first came in to see me, he weighed 550 pounds which is obviously a high degree of obesity um, by any metric, you know, whether it's BMI or waist circumference or combination thereof, right? But he also had a significant obesity related diseases, sleep apnea, um, I don't, he didn't have type two diabetes, but he had um, impaired glucose tolerance, high insulin levels, a lot of different things. 
And um, we began to treat him. We used multiple forms of therapy, surgical intervention, pharmacotherapy. He was already engaged in lifestyle, which I kind of alluded to at the outset. And we got him to 300 pounds. Now, if you were to see this gentleman walking down the street, people would be like, gosh, you know, look at that guy. He let himself go, you know? I wish he were exercising. I wish I wish he'd take care of himself. Look at how, just look at, look at these people. Look, see, they're eating too much McDonald's. Not knowing that his body obviously defends a really high set point of weight. 550 was too much, 300, you know what? Spot, none of those issues we just talked about were present anymore. Mm. Hence them coming up with this article title, I'm happy with my patient being 300 pounds because at 300 pounds for him, this is a healthy weight for him. Now, you can still say he carries some excess adipose. And yes, that may not necessarily be exactly what we would like, but I don't have a target number from this much lower because his metabolic health is ideal at 300 pounds. 300 is not 550. That's a 250 decrease that he's been able to maintain for many years, but it's not, it doesn't fit into any pretty box that I can give you. Right. And so what I, what I, I warn against with physicians, anyone, and I understand that the, the guidelines want to push you into this box, but most people don't fit well into a box and our hyper focus on getting into the box increases stress, which does what increase weight. When stress goes up in the body, the body's like, oh, stress is happening. I think a famine's coming. It just it could just be stress about bills or an assignment you have due or a grant, like a big NH grant going this week or whatever it is. And so your body does, it tries to store. Not tries, it does store. <laughs> it tries, it, it's successful in doing this. And so this is where, you know, right now I can tell you there's a, an entire Lancet Commission on Obesity with 60 obesity experts from around the world. I'm one of the 60 and we're trying to come together. You can imagine putting experts together where we have very strong opinion, opinions and feelings um, about what constitutes obesity. Now, there's some of us that like would like to eliminate BMI altogether, which won't happen, I can tell you. <laughs> but I can tell you that all of us do agree that BMI alone is not a good measure. Now, do they think it should still be used? Yes. In the context of other tools, absolutely. So, I mean, what I took home from that is like metabolic, working with your doctor to make sure that your metabolic health is sound is the way to go regardless of size. I mean, it's it's funny because it works kind of the other way. You know, I've not had any kind of visible weight issues in my life, except like when I was anorexic and that was a real problem. Right, right, right. But, but I have like familial high cholesterol, you know, a cholesterol thing. Exactly. But doctors are like, well, you're so active and you're fine and you're weight. And I'm just exactly. like, but really, exactly. actually, my fasting blood sugar is kind of high, you know, like all this right. stuff. So you yeah. got to get a, you get a pass, you get a check. And actually, um, one of my former fitness instructors, I mean, this is, you know, obviously a minority of, of individuals, but one of my former fitness instructors would get frustrated because he would go in and try to like, speak with doctors about issues and they're like, oh, but look at how, look at how fit you are. And he's like, no, no, but you don't understand. I, I have this issue <laughs> and I want you to help me, but you're just looking at the aesthetic side of me, which yes, I mean, if he very chiseled body type, but look, let me tell you, this is going on exactly what you're saying. Like, I can't, I can't fix the fact that my family has this cholesterol issue. I can't fix the fact that my family has this heart disease issue. Like yeah. those are the things that's the, that's the cloth from which I'm cut. And so, yes, even though I this outside 
box is a pretty looking box. Inside of the box isn't so great. Like I need some stuff <laughs> to fix the stuff in the box, right? Like yeah. lots in order. And that's, you're right. Like you're, you're absolutely right. And so for me, and this is where one of the pushbacks I get with regards to like the health at every size movement or one of the issues I have health at every size movement. The one thing we do agree with, um, or fat acceptance, health at every size is that I agree that you should respect and value everyone regardless of size. Right. That's number one. That's the, the one area if like we had a Venn diagram where we would overlap, but beyond that, I do believe you can technically be healthy to every size, but often the haze movement is like, well, just don't, don't bother me. Just let me be where I am. And I'm like, okay, well, I feel like we need to, to look in the box. <laughs> we can, we can just, yes, I don't, I'm not trying to make you 150 pounds or 125 pounds or whatever number, but I need to look in the box. You tell me, don't touch the box. Like, oh, leave the box in the corner. No. I don't care if the box is a pretty looking box on the outside or a box that maybe not is aesthetically pleasing for whatever reason. I need to look in the box and deal with with the contents. And that's where I push back because yes, like if whether you're lean or whether you have excess weight, I need to I need to get into the contents. I need to make sure the contents are the right contents. And that's where I think the health at every size movement fails individuals because they'll say, oh, well, I'm fine with my size but I'm really concerned about my diabetes. You're like, wait a minute, but don't those kind of go hand in hand? Hi, and since the term diabetes and the fact that 80% of the individuals that have type two diabetes also have obesity, which was often a precursor to the diabetes, you know? So when we start trying to separate these out, we, we're, we're missing the, the, the picture, right? Like of like looking at how these are interrelated, but I'm not gonna focus on a number. You don't have to fit in this box. Right. Just the box has to be good stuff inside the box, right? Kind of like my patient, right? The 300, 300 pounds. He has good stuff in the box now. It's good stuff in the box. Yeah. I love that. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested and designed for men. 
Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. I have a couple of questions. Like, I, I want to ask, you know, you had mentioned, you know, hormones when we talked about menopause and in your presentation at NAMS, you put up a slide that had stated, you know, loss of estrogens after menopause increases total adiposity and decreases lean body mass. Estrogenic HRT prevents this, yet it's never recommended for these purposes. And I'm wondering, is that because it often goes with progesterone and that has a different effect or like, why isn't it recommended then for these purposes? I think we have to take us back to the late nineties, early two thousands, when I was working in the office of women's health at the CDC and hormone replacement therapy got the ixnay, right? There was the fear associated with using hormone replacement therapy across the board. Um, when that happened, it really was a kind of around 2001, 2002 that we really started to see this kind of, you know, emerge as like kind of a really issue. We, we have, we collectively as a society have pushed back on any type of hormone replacement therapy because of, of those studies that were coming out at the time. Um, people that are treating people with menopause have obviously pulled away from a lot of that like all or nothing you know, kind of thinking that we saw in the late 90s, early 2000s. But I think that still lingers, much like if we're looking at anti-obesity medications, there's like this fear, which comes from the FinFin area, which is also the late 90s, early 2000s, right? So these things, they, they linger and they permeate. And so we don't even begin to think about these strategies. I can tell you that even if we're looking at studies, looking at like hormone replacement therapy and the, the role it potentially could play, we don't have a lot of good studies because going back to the late 90s early 2000 right so it's 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 all interrelated and and history is important i agree that we should be using history but sometimes our history is written incorrectly yeah yeah i mean i think we've come i mean the, the pendulum has swung like in my world i i see it like some people think it should be in the drinking water when you hit yeah, menopause, right. you know and i'm just like yeah. i'm not sure that's, that that's true you guys, are, you guys are a unique niche group right if you were to go to the, the standard family physician or internist and ask would they do anything with regards to hormone replacement therapy, they're like, absolutely not, right? Because they're in this camp and then you guys are way over here. <laughs> um, and so you have these dimorphic worlds, right? Do you suspect that it would have, you know, if used in the early part of the menopausal transition, it would have an effect on that 
adiposity shift or, you know, I mean, you, cause I also hear from so many women who try it and they don't really feel anything or they, they get some weight. And I, again, I don't know if that's the progestins. Um, they get some weight shift that they don't care for. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's hard to say. I, I can't, you know, I have not used it in my, my work specifically in, in treating patients with any um, that are coming to me with any, you know, excess weight. But I think that probably my hypothesis would be using it like in that perimenopausal course could have some impact longer term. But most people aren't really seeking care until they're kind of in this post, you know, so it's kind or of at least like, really in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're really in it. They're like having, you know, a lot of issues, kind, kind of like, for example, you know, patients are fine. Um, let's say they lose weight using whatever strategy and then they start to regain and then they only come once we were like regained everything. You're like, gosh, if you just if you'd come in like way back there, then we could have. We could help you not get to this point because now we're like we're already up in the, you know we're up here at the top of the mountain we gotta we gotta come back down and get to a plateau again so that would be my hypothesis now i've obviously i don't have any data to back this up i don't have the study to show that but that you know with anything right like if you get to it before it becomes problematic the likelihood of having an impact is much greater than getting to it once we already have you know gotten right. into a more problematic territory Right. That makes that makes sense. Because yeah. uh, we can't know until we do those. Kind yeah, of yeah, studies. Yeah, right. Exactly. But you know, but I mean, that's my hypothesis, right? Like, I mean, yeah. hypothesis, you know, you want it to be correct, but you just don't know. But that would be my my hypothesis, just based upon how we look at other things, right? Like that you if you can, like, for example, let's look at obesity, if I can prevent obesity, then we don't struggle with the disease, like if I can somehow prevent it, it's just that there's so much of the population that has it that like, you can talk about prevention, but what about all those people, <laughs> you know, like, you yeah. Know. So, yeah. If you were to see, you know, there, there's been a number of women who have come to me and they're, you know, they're, they're fine with sort of like, you know, it, it is what it is. We all go through this journey. You're going to age, your body's going to change. There's a, a level of an acceptance, but there, there's, there truly are some who, whose body shifts a lot. They put on, you know, especially in a population that does triathlon and does all sorts of activity, it can become like, I have to buy all new stuff. And like, it's this weight actually feels like it is hindering me. If you saw somebody like that, what would be your for your first course of action? I mean, if they have, I've, I've heard from women who are like, I've gained 30 pounds, you know, and they're not making it up. I mean, they're, it's- Oh, no, no, I, I always, yeah. I take everyone at face value. I, I think that most of us as docs don't, right? We'll assume like, you know, the guy that I talked about, like, oh, he must be doing something wrong. So I, I take it at face value. They're like, look, hey, doc, I've been doing this, this, this. And I'm like, yep. And so your body has decided it, here it is. So for many of those patients in my practice, many of them would, you know, go on to some type of pharmacotherapy agent. Um, and all of these agents, um, if you kind of recall me kind of touching on them, most of them do act on the central nervous system to shift you mostly into that pathway that we talked about, that POMC pathway. And what patients feel and the number one person that comes to see me and not just me, anyone in weight regulation is going to be a postmenopausal woman. It's so That's interesting. Number one person, like across the board, if you look at any of the trials for anti-obesity pharmacotherapy or surgery, who's in those trials? Period. and postmenopausal women. That is who makes up 80% of the trial. Wow. You know how we have to, when we're doing NIH studies and we have to report on like, are we going to be able to get women? We don't have to worry about that. And then the OBC <laughs> shows up, the women show up. Now we have a hard time getting men because they're like, oh, I'm fine with where, you know, it's a little bit more. But for women, it it really is um, 
that's who shows up. And they're like, hey, look, I'm trying, I've tried everything. And they're and they're frustrated because they can they there's nothing else they can physically do. And their body is like has shifted into this this space of like, and so then they realize now, of course, if we're treating any type of chronic disease, if we use a therapy and if it works, if it works is key, then we do use it long term. And so getting people into the mindset, particularly this group that you're talking about, this group that like, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't eat anything. I've always been the active. I was a, I was in the Olympic trials, you know, like the, which is great. I'm, and I'm, don't discredit that. But here we are today, and you've been telling me that look, for the last five years or ten years, this has just gotten worse. And you, there's you, what gives? Then we have to think about like, okay, well, the body's in a different space. It's a different milieu. We can utilize therapies. We have them, they're evidence-based, they're proven, they're efficacious. Why not use what we have, you know? And when patients are responders, keep in mind, notice I'm saying when patients mm-hmm. are responders, because often it's a lot of trial and error to figure out what works for an individual. Even within families, we see significant differences in response to therapies. Um, and if that's the case, then all we need to do is find another therapy and then find a combination of therapies. And then we consistently continue um, and it's with these strategies that we see a lot of people achieve health, health, right? And they're able to do the things they used to be able to do without. Because as you start to gain that weight, particularly, let's say you put on 30 pounds, you'll notice that, gosh, ooh, my knees do hurt. Like, why do my knees hurt? Like, I, I've never had any problems with knees. I, I'm a triathlete. And then you realize, oh, gosh, because I'm carrying more weight that's pushing on my joints. It's not that you have necessarily poor arthritis at this point, but gosh, feel, it, it can develop as we have that excess weight on the body for time, you know? So hopefully that helps kind of in terms of how I think about it. And when I'm working with women um, or men, but with women who's mostly likely to come in and see me, um, that's what they're telling me. And I'm like, okay, I believe you. Let's, let's, I see it. I can often, and I'll, what I'll often do, um, particularly in our system is I'll pull up their weight graph over time and you'll see maybe stable, stable, and you see the shift and you ask, well, how oh, yeah, it was menopause. Oh gosh, that did shift. Wow, I didn't realize it was at that point. Like they haven't really looked at it over the last 15 years. Or they can specifically tell you what happened if you see this kind of quote unquote yo yo yoing or weight cycling. And you're like, okay, what happened? Oh yeah, I went on Weight Watchers here. Okay. Oh, oh, then I came off Weight Watchers. Okay. So, you know, you see these yeah. shifts that can point out oh, what was going on at that given time, you know, um, pretty clearly. It's really interesting to watch. Um, I feel like I should do it. You like showed those th- those uh, those yeah. slides at the at the presentation. Um, do those uh, the pharmaceuticals that we're talking about here the medic yeah anti obesity medication mm-hmm. are they um are any of them contraindicated or have have any symptomology that would get in the way of of activity like that we're talking about? No, of, yeah. no, no. So actually, a lot of them are complementary. So fentramine, which everyone's terrified of, um, because it was part of the fenfen combination, actually. I always tell my patients, fentramine, the word fentramine starts with P-H, it's P-H-E-N-T-E-R-M-I-N-E. And guess what else starts with P-H? Physical activity. You know what works really well physical activity? Fentramine. Since it's a stimulant style agent, I find that patients that are really, really great responders, not always, but um, are those highly physically active? You know, it's giving you, you know, it's it's a stimulating um, the system and you're starting to see those changes and they like, wow, I do feel good. Wow, like I do. You know, and so so these are not contraindicated at all with physical activity. Excellent. And I was also surprised by a slide that you put up that how many medications are um, weight promoting. Yes. And oh, I'm, almost all of them. Basically, I, I was wondering, though, like, do doctors 
And I'm, and I'm going to say probably the answer is no, because I know that my own parents have been put on medications that they had no idea what the side effects were. Do doctors say that or do you have to read the fine print to know if that's going to be the case? I would say that since we're not ever educated about it, I mean, obviously, I this is my like my whole job. So I'm, I'm paying attention, but most doctors don't. So I can tell you one of the first things I often do. Um, if not, the first thing is I, I'm looking at what they're on. And so when I'm going like medications that they're on. Yeah. And so I'm like, oh gosh, you're on seven different medicines that can cause weight gain. I don't know if you know that. And they're like, oh no, my doctor didn't tell me that. Um, and so what we can first do is discern if they need these medications. And if they don't, then we, we wouldn't stop them all at once. Right? Like, we want to do this in a scientific way. We start, stop with one. Okay. And sometimes I never even need to add anything. All I'm doing is deleting what they already had. And you start to see the weight drift down and then drift down and then drift down. And they're like, wait a minute, it was just the stuff I was on? So we know that 20% of obesity in this country is caused by medications prescribed for other issues. The data shows it. Um, Craig Hills out of the CDC published a great paper looking at this recently. Um, 20% that is iatrogenic, right? And some of it is like, you know, you can't, like, let's say someone has let's say bipolar um, disorder, and many of those drugs are, you know, are weight promoting, but in order to treat their bipolar, we have to put them on three or four agents, all of which cause weight gain. And if we pull them back, then they go into a manic episode or something like that. Okay, so I'm, I'm fighting the battle of trying to go against their weight regulation. I have this one young woman I take care of right now who I just saw last week, which is why she pops into my brain. She's like early 30s and always was a lean phenotype, um, developed mental health disease and is on several medications, um, weight just plummeted up or like just pummeled up. Um, and, you know, it's, it's frustrating for her because I've finally been able to stop it with my medications, but it hasn't gone down. Like I've the stop the gain, but I mean, she's now up like 125 pounds from baseline. So someone that's always lived in a lean body now is dealing with obesity from a health perspective, dealing with how she's even received by society and recognizing that, wow, I was treated differently when I was a much leaner, but she has to treat the disease. And so we're in this kind of, we're caught between a rock and a hard place, you know? Wow. So yeah, and this happens. And it's, so sometimes it's like you are in a situation like that where I can't really shift anything. And then often there are times where I'm like, wait a minute, do you really need to be on this? And then we're we're shifting things down and I don't even need to add a medicine. All I gotta do is pull back the stuff you were already on and, and we can see major shifts. And they're like, wow, that's all I needed to do? I had no idea, right? That's awesome. Yeah. So this has been a, everything I dreamed of is more. <laughs> like it's been a really great <laughs> conversation. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think you would like to leave, you know, this this menopausal active audience with as far as you know all these concerns that they have with body composition and weight i would say the key thing is just know that our body is constantly changing um as we age regardless of race ethnicity socioeconomic status we are going to likely see shifts very few people less than two percent will have zero change in their body in some way form or fashion with that being the case that means um, basically all of us will have some major shifts begin to learn your body in its new state. If it's in a new state that's um, uncomfortable, don't be afraid to seek care. Go to people that are compassionate providers, um, compassionate physicians. They're, we're few and far between, unfortunately, but find the person that fits with you. 
because I can tell you that if you want to come to me and you want me not to discuss physical activity, then I'm not the good match for you because I will bring it up. If you want someone that's not going to bring bring it up, go to someone else, you know, find who is a good fit for you. My goal for patients, I tell them if I'm not the good, if I'm not the best fit, I don't want to take up your time. I don't want you to take up my time. I want you to be with the good fit. And so a lot of times it's finding the right fit. And once you get into the right fit, someone that's willing to help you, then you'll start to notice, oh gosh, this is a good fit. This is something I'm doing long-term. This is not just about the short, you know, mar- you know, the sprint, which I'm a sprinter, but this is not a sprint. This is a marathon, right? Um, this is this is a marathon as much as I like the the quick gratification of a sprint. Um, <laughs> that's who everybody wants to watch in the Olympics, anyway. Let's let's be real about it. It's um, true. <laughs> <laughs> um, how many marathoners do you know by name, and how many sprinters do you know? I'm just I'm just saying that to everyone's listening. Well, I, I, I'm in a I'm in a very biased category here, so I know <laughs> I know most of the marathoners. <laughs> you do? You don't know the sprinters? But if I were to throw out Floris Griffith Joiner, well, of course I know. I mean, Flo right? I mean, See, I mean, you don't even have to have much knowledge for me to throw out Flo. <laughs> or, you know, you know, or any of those type of people. Anyway, the whole point is um, this is a marathon and, and our bodies are constantly changing the milieu in which the environment in which we live is constantly changing, which that our bodies um, are going to struggle even more and more. And so it's okay. Don't feel like you need to put blame on yourself. Um, don't hyper-focus on the number on the scale. It will just not be positive for you look at your whole health. And look, I think these are key things that I really want to bring up. Well, thanks so much. And thank you for fighting the good fight and doing all the work you're doing. It's really, it's such a breath of fresh air. I well, thanks for, I love, well, you know, I, I will go toe to toe, ask whoever battled me on Thanksgiving day when they tried to tell me that all weight struggles were due to McDonald's, um, um, which I know not to be the case. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so I, I, I'm going to continue to do it. I take this very personally. Um, even though I have never struggled with obesity, the degree of empathy I have for persons that struggle with their weight is, I would say, unparalleled. Um, I can sense, feel, eat, breathe, live what my patients experience, and it hurts to see the pain that they experience, and my goal is to help change the world that they live in. Well, that's our show. Come on back next week when I sit down with Dr. Michelle Tollefson, the author of Paving a Woman's Path Through Menopause and Beyond. Dr. Tollefson is a lifestyle medicine expert and OBGYN and a professor at the Metropolitan State University of Denver. We had a wonderful conversation about how lifestyle medicine can make the menopause journey smoother and improve women's health in this phase of life. She also shares her journey through breast cancer and how she used lifestyle medicine to get through chemotherapy and her multiple surgeries. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager, The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. 
Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.